And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the mountain, Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Man, thank you, Jared. Good morning. What a joy to be with you guys again this morning and keep talking a little bit about Jesus. Um, this morning, we've been in a series uh, the last uh, few weeks called, Who is this man called Jesus? Looking at his humanity and, and the significance of that and uh, what we can learn from him. And this morning, I want to highlight two different stories that, that emphasize his humanity, specifically those that emphasize his exhaustion and the weariness and, and the agony and pain that he experienced. And so we're going to look at the testing and temptation in the wilderness, as well as the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. So first, I want to look at the wilderness. And uh, as, as I was looking at that, it reminds me of a story of a dear friend of mine. And a, a few years back, my wife and I, we've been serving on the mission field for the last 20 so years and, and just came back to the States, for those that don't know, just last year. And uh, a few years back, I was working with a dear friend of mine, a guy I was mentoring, who has a pretty extraordinary circumstances and was facing an insane temptation beyond anything most of us will ever experience. Um, he came from an Islamic nation and his father was the king, was royalty of this Islamic territory. And he had walked away from Islam, left the royal family, and had started a ministry that was seeing incredible fruitfulness of reaching out to Muslims. And as a result, there were many that were trying to end his life in part of the Islamic uh, community and the leaders in the area. But his father was trying to get him back home to take over the kingship. True story again. And, his, and in this process, his father gives him an ultimatum that he has to follow. And the choice was simple. Either face certain death, which was, coming to, which was going to be coming down and likely torture, or Come back, become king, and all the wealth and the power you could ever imagine is yours for the taking, right? Come back and become king or face certain death. I mean, that's quite a choice to give someone. Especially at the time, this guy was living in, in, in a safe house. He was afraid for his life. He was dealing with extreme poverty. And he, all he had to do, the only stipulation was this, is if you come home, you don't have to give up your faith, but you must become a secret Christian. You cannot proclaim it, you can't speak about it, and the kingship is yours, all the power, all the wealth is yours. And we're talking massive degrees of wealth. Could you imagine being in that position? Certain death, or all the wealth and privilege you can ever imagine. And I'll never forget being there when I was there when he got this ultimatum. And I'll be honest, I was like probably dumber than most of Job's friends in that moment as far as the advice I was giving, because I had spent the last season of my life trying to keep him alive from all the threats and the people that had been abducting him and trying to do stuff, and I was just focused on trying to keep him alive and not becoming a martyr. And he got this, this, this ultimate, and I'm like, dude, imagine what you could do as a secret Christian over this, this kingdom, and imagine what you could do. You could still, you don't have to give up your faith, but maybe God has a plan for you in that place. Maybe God wants to do it, and I was giving terrible advice trying to keep him alive. And the ultimatum came, and the ultimatum was you have until Monday morning, and Monday morning you will either be captured to be killed or you'll be, you'll be whisked away to become king. Those were the options that were given to him, a torturous death or power and wealth. What would you do? Now, we saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus, when he was taken to the, to, the, to the temptation of the wilderness, it's the spirit who led him there, right? 
And Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And this is important because when Jesus is taken into the wilderness, it's immediately after it's revealed, after his baptism, where the Spirit comes upon him. And it's immediately after his first chance. This is the first thing he does upon stepping into the Spirit-filled ministry of three years of intense public ministry after 30 years of being a nobody. And being a nobody, meaning that nobody thought there was anything special about Jesus, right? And he's entering into this time, and the first thing that happens is the Spirit leads him out to the wilderness. And by wilderness, it's not just some, you know, like some nice wooded Pacific Northwest wilderness. If you've seen photos, we can throw one up here. This is the Judean desert, right? So this is the wilderness that he's going into. Bleak is going to be, if you've been there in, in this area, it is hot as can be. It is so dry, so hot. It is a miserable place to be. And this is where he spends 40 days of fasting without food. And at the end of 40 days, Jesus would have been a shell of himself, exhausted as a fully human being, physically exhausted from the heat, from the wind, from lack of shelter, from the lack of nutrients in his body. His body would just be eating itself away for 40 days. The longest fast I ever did was like, I don't know, 14, 15 days. And at the end of that, I had to stop because I was literally fainting because my body couldn't keep standing after the exhaustion. And after 40 days, he would be exhausted and in pain and tired. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, it's kind of those well-dove verses. I love this. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, this profound truth, he was hungry, right? Yes, he would have been very, very hungry. That's an understatement. You know, I was li- when I was living in Uganda, I was uh, working with a Bible school. And one of our students, when they were there, sadly, this is, this is not too uncommon, one of their relatives had gone up to a prayer mountain, and many pastors and others have tried this, where they tried to do a 40-day fast on a prayer mountain, and they had died during the time that we were there, and they had to leave our school and go attend the funeral of someone who had tried to copy this aspect of Jesus, and, and too many have done that, because this, this isn't like the American cleanse form of fasting, right? This isn't you fill yourself up with nutrients and, and smoothies to be able to add the nutrients in your body while you enjoy Netflix and, and chill, right? This is, this is legit. He is exhausted at this point, weary as can be. His body body is in pain, eating itself away. And if Jesus had a halo, like we talked about a few weeks ago, this wouldn't be a big deal at all, right? If we have that Superman version of Jesus where he's just flying above it all and not touched, none of this would matter because it doesn't really affect him. But as the fully human Jesus, this was wrecking his body. And in that experience of weakness and pain, Satan comes to him in Matthew chapter four, and he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And again, if Jesus wasn't fully human, none of this matters. But Jesus is exhausted, and Satan knows it. And so he tries to get him to compromise the whole reason that he came in this moment. All you need to do, Jesus, is access your divine attributes. Access that, this simple little thing. Compromise this one little bit, and you can end the pain and the sorrow. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 15, he tells us what Jesus was like. And he says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So filled with the Holy Spirit, in the midst of weakness, Jesus slams down Satan by quoting scripture, and and, and he overcomes this temptation. And then Satan brings more temptations to him, not just dealing with hunger, but trying to pray on whatever hesitation Jesus may have had in his role on earth and attempting to get Jesus to take a shortcut to avoid the pain and the suffering that's to come. And each time Jesus responds with scripture, rebukes Satan, and overcomes. And it's proof again from our message last week that Jesus was rooted in the word. He had memorized and spent endless hours studying scripture that in the moment, those verses came to him right at the moment. 
and we get a window into his temptation and his exhaustion, his weariness, right from the beginning. This is the first thing that happens to him is, this, is that he experiences this wilderness experience with the Spirit, and he has to overcome. And similarly, my friend, when faced with the choice of death and power and wealth, he was also able to hold on to the Lord and overcome. No thanks to me. Despite the pain of his circumstances and knowing that despite, unless there was outside divine intervention that he would have certain death, torturous death that would follow, he told me, James, let them come for me because there's no way I'm giving up on the Lord. And you know, the insane part about my friend's story is that Monday morning when it came around where the ultimatum was given, we knew that he would be taken and his life was about to be ended unless there was divine intervention. That night, I was up much of the night. I felt like King Darius when Daniel was in the lion's den, like knowing that outside of divine intervention, this is over. And my friend who I had journeyed with and struggled with for so long, I knew that, God, unless you intervene, this is over with. And that morning, I, I hear from him. And he told me the story that that night he had just got a message from his father and Jesus had appeared to his father that night in a vision. An Islamic king of a powerful kingdom. Jesus appeared to my vision that night and said, leave your son alone. He is mine. Do not touch him. And God delivered him right at the last hour and allowed him to live. And he's still alive and serving the Lord to this day. And I love that story because Jesus delivered and he was faithful to him when he had to make the choice between a life that likely had no certainty, likely pain and hardship, or one that would be the ease of, of power and wealth. And Jesus made the same decision, right? He had to come uh, to his father again, hold on to his father and the things that God had created him for. In the midst of his weariness and exhaustion, Jesus chose that. Even though he felt the heat, he felt the exhaustion, he felt the genuine struggle that he was in at that time, Jesus understood the desire to take the easy road. It wasn't worth it. He had that desire in his heart to take the easy road out, but he chose, instead of short-term ease, he chose the long-term path that would lead to pain and agony. And this was the first event of ministry. So now I want us to jump to the last ministry event he has right before the, the, the trial and the crucifixion. And that's going to be in the Garden of the Gethsemane. And as we do this, I want us to consider the full humanity of Jesus as he endures this night. Because this event is one of the most revealing anywhere in Scripture of the full humanity of Jesus and what he had to endure as he is fully human in this place. And so when looking at the Garden of the Gethsemane, we must remember that each of the authors have a different take on this. The three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them share a slightly different perspective. For example, Luke is the only one that shares about Jesus sweating blood and the angels ministering to him. But yet Luke skips over the fact that he went back to the disciples three separate times and had three separate prayer times. And so to understand this passage, we must look at it in context. And so we're going to kind of jump to show each point of this, of this example as we look at each of the gospel accounts in, in kind of the order in which they were done. And so I'll kind of break it down into the different events that happened in this evening. And so first, Jesus initially speaks with his disciples as he goes to the Mount of Olives. And we'll start here in Matthew chapter 26. It says, Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me, he speaks to them. So already, he's not even started praying it. And it says that he is so full of sorrow that Jesus is to the point of death. That is how grieved his spirit is. That's how much agony he's already going through. Just with the idea of what's to come, he's at the point of death. He can barely contain the pain and the sorrow that's within his heart at this point that he says he's about to die. 
And clearly much of this has to do with knowing the torture and the pain that's to come. But the reality is thousands of men by this point and women have gone to the cross before and they've not experienced sorrow to this degree. So this is more than just the physical pain. Right? There is the Jesus caring more than just fear of the cross and fear of the torture. This also has to do with him knowing the betrayer is about ready to betray him and, 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 and turn against him in a few minutes or a few hours. It's also knowing that Jesus is going to the cross and he's carrying the sins of the world upon him. It's knowing that all this life and the ministry on earth, all this stuff is coming to him at a head in that moment. And his grief is beyond anything he can understand. And he cannot physically or emotionally bear the pain of this that he's experiencing. And so what does he do? He goes to the disciples, his, the the three specifically of James, Peter, and John, and says, I need you, come and pray with me. But yet the pain was also so intense and the agony so overwhelming that for whatever reason, he didn't feel he could share this with the other eight disciples because the ninth one was the betrayer. And it's just the three. I mean, you see the humanity of Jesus and the overwhelmingness that it's those three he felt he could share this with. And he says, I need you, come pray with me. And this is right at the beginning. And now he moves towards his prayer time. And let's look at this. We're going to pick up Luke's recording of this in Luke chapter 22. He says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus moves a few feet away from his disciples. He kneels down and look at his prayer. The very first thing we have record of him praying is this. Father, please take this cup of suffering. Take the weight of this away from me. And then the famous prayer that many of us may know where he says, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Now, what's interesting is most Christians, we grow up with the understanding that when Jesus prays that, it's kind of like this idea that it's finished, that he kind of, he deals with it, says, not my will, but yours, and he's ready to get up and go move forward and welcome the soldiers that are coming. But that is not the situation here, because look at this. After he says this, this, is, this prayer is in the beginning, right at the beginning, after he says this, he's still in a state of anguish and pain, and the only way that he can survive after saying, not my will, but yours, after putting his trust in God, the only thing that allows him to survive is it requires an angel come to sustain him supernaturally to physically come and hold him up because he doesn't have the strength to keep going on his own in any physical way so the angel comes and supernaturally strengthens him and so now we can say okay so now jesus is okay he's he's trusted god he's handed his pain over to god the angel came to strengthen him he should be okay now but nope what does he do next he goes back to the disciples and says i need you guys to be with me he can't do it on his own. Now, being in agony, or sorry, in verse 44, after being in agony, it says he prays even more. So this, the angel comes, he's still in agony, and it says then he prays even more earnestly. Right? It, it only increases. The, the angel being there doesn't seem to take away the pain. His, his trust isn't able to say, okay, God, I trust you fully in this. I mean, it kind of feels like Jesus should be okay right now. The idea that often we have of Jesus is he just, he made it, he said it like, God, I give this to you, I trust you. The angel sustained him. But what we see is Jesus at this point is still struggling just as much as when he did, if not more than when he started praying. That even Jesus is struggling to trust the Father with his circumstances. Even Jesus is struggling with this right now. Next, what happens? 
His agony is so great that he starts sweating blood. And this is just insane. It's been a proven medical condition that's been observed over the years. It's called hematidrosis. And it's an idea where when a, when a condition in which a capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood, occurring under, under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. And all of this is after he prayed and trusted God, after physically, supernaturally strengthened by an angel, after praying even more earnestly, then blood starts pouring from his brow because he can't handle it. And his agony is so insane that he feels he could die. And all of the, again, this is after he says he trusts God. Are we getting, beginning to get a picture of what Jesus is enduring here? Fully human. The author of Hebrews describes it in this way. He says in verse chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's what it's referring to. To him who was able to save him from death, to his father. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus is suffering greatly here in the garden. And I can't conceive of how anyone could deny the full humanity of Jesus when you look at the Garden of Gethsemane and look at the agony to which he experienced beyond anything that any of us could ever fathom. And all of this is just the first hour of his prayer. Matthew and Mark both tell us that after that hour of praying this way, of this incredible agony and blood, sweat, and tears, he goes back, Matthew 26, verse 40, he says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Where he says in Luke twenty-two forty-six, he says, And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I mean, can't you just, that Jesus, he recognized his closest friends, the one he's relying upon at the moment, they failed him. And he says, wake up. Get off your butts. What are you doing? I need you right now. Stand with me. Get up. Stand with me. I can't do this alone. Jesus is desperate for the support of his friends who are the closest to him. And he's in agony. And he feels, I cannot do this alone. And then we learn Jesus goes back and prays again, Matthew 26. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you notice anything similar about that prayer? It's exactly the same as the prayer he was praying over an hour ago. Same exact prayer. But wait. Didn't Jesus, you know, put his trust in God and, and trust God with his pain and his sorrow and agony and already say that he would, he would follow God and, and he would take this from him? Yes, but after an hour or more of insane blood, sweat, and tears, Jesus is still at the same point, struggling, wrestling, saying, God, please take this. He already offered it over, and there he is again saying, God, take this pain from me. I can't handle it. And he's still proclaiming that he will trust the Father. And so, I mean, after another hour of this, clearly Jesus now is ready to move forward. Right now, bring on the soldiers, bring on the crucifixion, right? But not yet. We learn that again, he needs the support of his friends. He's feeling weak and isolated and devastated when he goes and he sees that they are asleep yet again. He goes to check on them. He needs their help. Mark chapter 14, verse 40 says, And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. Jesus is looking for their support, 
finds them sleeping. And you can just hear the weariness in this passage as they're looking at the bloody face, the blood-smeared face of Jesus, exhausted and in agony and broken and covered in sweat. And they're waking up and they have no words. There's just shame over them as they have no words to say why they weren't there with him. And so what does Jesus do next? Matthew tells us in 26, 44. So leading them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. Now we're hours into his prayer time, and what does Jesus do this time? Full of faith, having overcome, he says, Let, let's welcome the soldiers. No, he's back in prayer again, same prayer from three hours ago, or however long it's been by this point. Father, please don't make me do this. I don't want to do this. Please take this cup of suffering from me. Lord, if there's any other way, please provide it. But if it's your will, I will follow through. And finally, at some point, he comes to a recognition of his role. He accepts it in Mark 16, he tells us, and he came the third time and said to his disciples, are you still sleeping, taking a rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And can you hear the pain and exhaustion in Jesus' voice here? He's saying, are you still sleeping? He's like, fine, it's enough. We got to move on. And from here, he's arrested, and with a couple hours, his body's being brutalized by the most horrific form of torture known to man. As the Romans developed the most hor horrific forms of torture as Jesus is brutalized. But what's crazy about the crucifixion that's, that's, that's to come is it seems that this experience in the Garden of Gethsemane is actually worse for Jesus than the actual crucifixion as far as the pain that he's experiencing here. As Jesus goes through this weariness and this pain and this exhaustion. And so the question then, is this the Jesus that you know? His humanity on full display. His weaknesses on full display. His exhaustion and his agony. His feeling deserted and alone. Being let down and disappointed by those closest to him. Saying that he trusts God, but for a while unable, it seems, to get those words from his head to his heart. Jesus struggling to trust the Father as he keeps saying it over and over and over again. Struggling so mightily to step out to do what he knows he's called to do. And this is our creator. This is Jesus. The one who spoke the world into existence, experiencing the full spectrum of human emotion and weakness and pain. Jesus experienced all that this world has to throw at him, all that Satan could throw at him, and he took on the devil, he took on the evil that exists, and he bore our evil, bore our pain for us. And he broke the power of death to save us. And, and, and it's, it's amazing of what he's done. The author of Hebrews says it in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. So he breaks the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And then so he became fully human so he could break the power of death. And then he goes on to say a verse later, he says, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made like us in every respect, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. So we see that he, he breaks the power of death, he takes our sins, but it wasn't just for the sake of our eternity that he does this. Because the very next verse in Hebrews says this. 
Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Because the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made, not just his death, but of the suffering and being tested in the wilderness, in his life, in Gethsemane, and, 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 and at, at the wilderness, and with, with Lazarus and all the else that goes into him, he is able to help us when we're struggling or tempted or, or, or being overwhelmed or weary or broken. He's able to do this because he has done it all. He's able to meet us just what we saw in Hebrews 2.15, where he says, only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. He could do it because he's been there in ways beyond anything that we've experienced. So yes, Jesus offers salvation. He breaks the power of death and deliverance. Amen to that. He offers hope of eternal life. Amen to that. But his becoming fully human doesn't just offer us eternal hope and eternal rest, but he has come to offer us a life here, not just then and there, a life that is here and now as well, a life of rest from our weariness, a life of rest from our pain, a life of hope and healing now, not just then and there. This is what this is about. Jesus is able to minister to us in the midst of our exhaustion. He's able to minister to us in the midst of our pain, in our agony, in our grief, in our mourning, in our weariness, and being overwhelmed because he's been there. When we've been, when, when, when when we've been told that, that God, or when we we're tell God that we'll trust him a thousand times and we keep failing, when we feel like a complete failure, when we feel like we are faithless, like we're broken, or when we're tired, or when we're afraid of death for ourselves or for those we love, regardless of those situations, we have a Savior who has been there. He's been there in degrees that, again, we don't understand, whose sweat and blood was so overwhelming that he was to the point of death, needing the angels to supernaturally sustain him and needing friends and needing God and he understands far more than we ever will how to walk through this and it is this Jesus this God who says in Matthew chapter 11 one of my favorite passages he says in 28 come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest see Jesus understands this and when he says it, it means so much more than if it was just some Superman saying these things. And he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I've been there. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear that? These are the words of Jesus who understands the exhaustion of 40 days in the desert. The agony of Gethsemane. And this Jesus says, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, come. He says, I will give you rest. Learn from me. I've been there. I've been in worse circumstances. I will care for you. Learn from me, for I am gentle. You will find rest for your souls. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Cast all your anxiety on Jesus, because Jesus cares for you. Or one of my favorite passages about Jesus from the book of Isaiah 42, verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Man, I love this image so much. 
the picture of, of Jesus walking through a field of bruised reeds, of, of long blades of grass that are bruised in the center and fragile, and just the tiniest breath, and they will fall over because of their fragility. And Jesus moves among this field of reeds with such gentleness and compassion and care that not a single one folds over because that is how gentle and caring he is. Or I love the image of Jesus carrying a candle with a smoldering wick that is just about to go out. The wick is barely holding on. There's almost nothing left to it on its own. And in Jesus' hands, the wick keeps going. The fire keeps burning. He's that gentle, that caring for his people. And this is why the broken and the abused are so attracted to Jesus, why they run to him. Because in Jesus' hands, they know that they are cared for. This is why he's called the bread of life the living water, the healing balm of Gilead that soothes our hearts and our souls because he can relate to us in whatever we're going through. And he calls us to bring our burdens to him, to bring our weariness to him, to bring our financial burdens to him, whether we're coping okay or whether we feel like that smoldering wick that's just barely, barely holding on and about to go out. Jesus is there carrying us. And so maybe you're exhausted after the last 18 months of what's going on if you're like most people. And you've just got compounding traumas and you're just like, Lord, I need you. Or maybe some of you, you've suffered deep loss in the last year and it just seems like too much to bear and you're weary and you're tired. Or maybe you're walking through a health crisis for yourself or for someone you love and you feel alone and isolated in the process and you're just tired. Or maybe you feel like you're stuck on some kind of hamster wheel and it's just exhausting and it's just one thing after another and it's just everything of this last 18 months just keeps bringing one event and one crisis or one difficulty, one new thing after another. And you've grown weary and your soul is tired. Or maybe it's just been a long time since you experienced this joy because just weariness has become the default and just exhaustion. Or maybe you've never given your life to Christ. And right now, you're hearing him just pull you in and say, come to me, all who are weary. Regardless, Jesus is calling you to come to him. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, he's saying, come to me. As we saw earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then he says this next. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because he understands, because he's walked through everything that we've walked through and more, it says, let us then come before the throne of grace with confidence, draw near to him that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He says, come if you're weary. So what we want to do this morning is we're just going to have an extended time of, uh, of worship as we finish up this morning. You don't need to stand to worship if you don't want to, and you can, but it might be more appropriate to kneel if you want. During this time, you're welcome. If you want to go pray before the cross, do that. If you want to come up here and pray, and there'll even be people up here if you want to come forward and receive prayer. There'll be a number of us that'll be up here just to pray with you if you're at a place and you just feel like you want prayer. Feel free to do that. No pressure. But we want us just to be able to sit before the Lord in his throne of grace this morning for a few minutes. And just let his grace wash over us and pour over us. And we want to recognize that this God, this Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary. And may we bring to him this morning, if you're tired, exhausted, and, and just weary this morning, bring it before the cross. 
Let us with confidence, and he says there in that last verse, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we are in need of you, Lord. We need you more than we actually know, Lord, because you've been there and you've walked through it all. And so, Jesus, we come before your throne of grace to receive mercy and find hope and healing in our time of need. Jesus, so many of us are weary. We've been fighting and and, and trying to be strong in this season. Lord, give us the strength not to fight on our own, but to come to you and to cast our burdens upon your shoulders, Lord, to take up your yoke, Lord. May we experience your rest this morning, Jesus. You are our fountain of living water, Jesus. May our eyes be fixed upon you. Strengthen us, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come right now and strengthen us, Lord. Help us to cast those burdens upon you, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to enter a time of worship. You don't have to sing if you don't want to. You can just pray wherever you're at. Come forward if you want to do that. But let's just let the Lord move in our hearts and bring strength to weary souls.